We are starting a new series today. We're going to be going through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. So just to give some context here, the book is set in the first the fifth century BC, and Nehemiah was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes the first of Persia. And he lived in a massive city called Susa, which is about 250 kilometers east of the Tigris River, and that would be today in, in Iran. So that's where the story is set. Uh, the city of Susa is also where the story of Esther unfolds. It's a very well-known city and, and plays an important part in uh, the history of God's people around this time. And you may be wondering, well, how did the Persians get in on the act? Well, it was the Babylonians that conquered Jerusalem in about 587. But it wasn't long after that that the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And so they took over what they had conquered. So the exile was originally into Babylon. But by this stage in history, the Persians were running the show. So that's a little bit of background. I'm going to pray because for the sermon we need a bit of prayer, and then uh, we're going to get into it. Lord, as we start today reading the book of Nehemiah, we pray that the truths of its pages would bounce off the page and impact our lives. Please give us soft hearts and receptive hearts to receive what your word is saying to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Let's read together. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah, that's where people are in exile, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So here's Nehemiah, he's, he's working as the cupbearer for the king of Persia in Susa. Some people come over from Jerusalem. So he uses that an opportunity to say, this is the remnant, the few people that didn't go off to Babylon, they're stuck in Jerusalem, and now he has an opportunity to find out how things are going. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commandments, decrees, and laws 
you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So that's our chapter. Here's a little information straight out of Wikipedia about cupbearers. Basically, this was like the chief butler. This was an important position. This is not a person who washed the dishes. This is a position where you not only selected food, but did quality control. And there was a high degree of trust between the king of Persia, who was the ruler of kind of the known world, and Nehemiah. So he was in a, in a very privileged position. And no doubt the king really liked Nehemiah and trusted him. But what can we learn today from the story of Nehemiah? I believe a great deal, particularly for us in our South African context. The first words that really strike me in this passage is how when he has opportunity to find out how are things going in Judah how are things going with my people how are things going with the work of God when he has an opportunity to ask that question he asks the question the first thing I notice about Nehemiah in this passage is that he wants to be informed. He wants to know what's going on in the world around him. And so he speaks to the right people. He doesn't read a book about it or some article on the internet, but he talks to people on the ground who've been there, who've been living it. And he asks them, how are you guys? What's happening? Nehemiah had a cushy job. He was doing fine, but in his heart, he still had this concern for other people. Unlike so many people today, he was not just concerned about himself and his own well-being. Too many people today, even Christian people, are too caught up in their little world. They just want to be left alone to get on with their lives and don't want to be hassled about the problems of other people. And I know we all feel that way at times. But we can't live in our protective bubble, in our cocoon, isolated from the troubles going on around us. The self-centeredness, is, this is an aside, is dressed, addressed in the, the book of Haggai, where 
God's temple is in a state of ruin. And the prophet says to God's people, he says, is this a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses when my house remains a ruin? In other words, God's people were totally focused on feathering their own nest, building their properties, um, paneling their houses. Paneling is unnecessary. It's purely a cosmetic thing to make it look nice and to make you feel nice. And God questions the people and says, is this really a time for you to be living in a paneled house when God's house is, is in a state of ruin? And the Lord says, consider your ways. And then he goes on to explain, this is why things have not worked out for you in life. You've planted much, but harvested little. You've, you drink, but you never have your full. You've put on clothes, you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And God says, this is because you, you, you're so focused on seeking your own life. And the prophet says, go to the mountains and bring down timber, build the house of the Lord. For many of us, we can be focused on our our own lives and what's going on here and oblivious to, to what other people are experiencing. Throughout history, when atrocities have taken place, there were usually people around who could have stopped it or done something about it. And time and time again, they would say, but we did not know what was going on. It is true, out of sight, out of mind. But Nehemiah is someone who who wants to know what's going on. If we're not already like Nehemiah in this regard, can we learn from him? Will we be those who ask the hard questions, who want to know how others are doing, how others are living? And for some of us, this means reaching out across comfort zones. There's this interesting verse in Romans 12 that may apply to to some here where the Bible specifically says, don't be a proud person, but be willing to associate with people of low position, people who who are perhaps living in a different community or a different way to you. Will you be willing to, to spend time with them, get to know them? There's something so enriching and so good about associating with people who are different to us. We can learn so much from one another. I love it when Jesus says to us, he says, if you just love those who love you, what's the big deal about that? Everybody does that. If you just greet those, you only greet your brothers. What are you doing more than than others. As Christians, we should be leading the way in reaching out to those in need, reaching out to those who, who are in trouble. Verse 2 says, Hananiah, one of my brothers came from Judah and some others, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. What is the the thinking that lies behind Nehemiah's thinking? He's really concerned about God's plan. 
How is the work of God advancing? Sure, these were his fellow kinsmen living in Jerusalem. But, he's concerned, but he understood the Jews were God's people. These were the people representing God here on earth. How was God's mission going? And he finds out that things are going terribly. That they couldn't be going any worse. He finds out that the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down. The place has been burnt to the ground. People have gone into exile in Babylon. And the city of God, the city that was meant to be the joy of the whole earth, which is how Jerusalem is described in the Psalms, that city was, was in ruins. And he finds out that all is not well. And these are questions that we should be asking ourselves about other communities. How are they doing? How is the kingdom of God advancing? And if I can bring it closer to home here, we should be asking ourselves, how are God's people in Lavender Hill? How is the church doing there? How are God's people doing in, in Kailicha? Is the, the gospel advancing there? Is the church healthy there? And, and we might find the, the answer that Nehemiah receives is, is very similar to the answer that we will receive if we ask the right questions. We will find out probably that things are going really badly. That, that, God's, that God's church is suffering. That God's people are suffering. That they are going without. That they, they are struggling every day. We need to ask the, these questions and not just say, well, we're doing great. We've got a nice church. Look at the new carpets. Taste our fancy coffee. We probably spend more on coffee in this church than pastors in the township earn a salary. You know, does this kind of thing worry us? Will we be like Nehemiah and find out how is it going? What is life like for you? We can't do the whole out of sight, out of mind. I believe that the problem is not that wealthy South Africans are not generous. I believe many wealthy people are very generous. I think the problem is often just isolation, that people really do not know how others are living. And if we don't know, we don't feel, and if we don't feel, we tend not to give. This is the news he receives. Those who survived the exile are back in the province. They're in great trouble and disgrace 
The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. The description is, well, how are my brothers doing? How are God's people doing? How's the advance of the kingdom? Well, they're in big trouble, and they're in disgrace. What does it mean if you have no walls as a community? It means you're vulnerable. Anyone can come in and steal your stuff. It means your community is broken down, that the cohesion that holds a community together is, is not there. Many communities in Cape Town are like that, easily infiltrated, unsafe, lack of community, cohesion. What does it mean when you say a city has no gates? What's the big deal about gates in the Bible? Gates are where the leadership sat. If you wanted to go and speak to the city council, you went to the gates. That was the hot spot where the action took place. When it says the gates are burned and broken down, it means these are communities that have no leadership, no governance. And why were they in disgrace? Because it's hard to fulfill God's calling in your life and be a light to the Gentiles and an example of a redeemed humanity when you can't even put a roof over your head. And this is what Nehemiah finds out when he asks the hard questions. I don't want to pull on your heartstrings today, but this is Pastor Lata who preached here three weeks ago. And I didn't even plan to do the sermon series, by the way. I was away when it all got planned. And I wasn't even given this chapter. I was just found, okay, I'm preaching on chapter one. Great. So here I am. But I can't help making the connection with, with a man I spoke to who told me his church is in ruins and the rubble is there for all to see. And the question is, how do we feel about this? What does this say about the state of the Christian witness in Harari Kailicha? And I'm not trying to make anybody guilty, but these are realities we, we have to face. And if ever I'm going to make an application from this chapter and this book, this is a thing that comes to mind. And in verse 4, we're told that when Nehemiah heard how things were going in Jerusalem, he says, I sat down and, and wept. His heart is moved. This is not how most people respond when they find out that God's plan is grinding to a halt. Too often our response is one of indifference. Or we think it's not my problem. Or we think, well, that mess there, that's their own doing. If only they'd taken a little bit more care with their building, it would still be up. We can often think it's people's fault that they're in the mess that they're in. And let me say, I think people very often are in a mess, deep, deep trouble because of their own stupidity and their own foolishness and sin. 
the Bible talks about how the sins of the parents get visited on the third and fourth generation. And that's not some spiritual principle that outworks itself. My great-great-great-grandfather's sins are now, boom, I have a problem in my life. That's not how it works. It's just that if your parents are godless, if they're making silly decisions and living debauched lives, that filters down so much so that even the fourth generation is going to be affected by that behavior. And many people today who are living in poverty are doing so not because of their own actions or even that of their parents, but because they're in a poverty trap, in a cycle of poverty that's impossible to get out of. We, we, many of us who are privileged, we have financial capital, but there's also educational capital and social capital. These are the networks of relationships and the influence and, and, and the access and the people we have access to. This invisible backpack that some people go through life with, with every answer we need for every situation at our disposal. Many people don't have that privilege. As you can see from the mountain, this is Masafumileli, probably from a year or two ago when they had that fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The next thing Nehemiah does is, is to pray. Not a two-minute prayer in the car on the way to work. For some days he mourns and fasts and prays. He engages with the problems he hears about at a deep level. And he's bringing it to the Lord. And I think it's out of this period of prayer and mourning and that God speaks to him and says, Nehemiah, I want you to be part of the solution here. You need to go and speak to your boss because I want to use you in this situation. And then we get to the part of confession, verse 5 to 7. And his prayer is really an acknowledgement and an owning of his own failures and the failures of his community of which he was a part. Verse 5 is worship. And he speaks about God's goodness and God's attributes and how awesome God is. And he, he, he locks into God's plan. He understands that the Jews are God's servants. And then he launches into confession. And I want us to spend some time on this. He says... I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws. We have acted very wickedly towards you. There are a few points I want to make about confession. In the New Testament era, we can't confess sins on behalf of other people. 
I can't commit someone else's life to Christ for them <laughs> or, or ask the Lord to forgive all their sins. You know, we all stand before the Lord alone. It was slightly different here because Israel had a corporate covenant with God. But having said that, I believe we can still recognize and call out the sins and failings of whatever group we are actually a part. There is a place for, for corporate confession. And humbly before God, Nehemiah identifies those things about his own culture that were displeasing to God and that had caused the mess they were now in. And Jerusalem was burned and broken down because of the sins of God's people. It wasn't something other people did to them. It was because of their disobedience they were in the mess they were in. And look what he's willing to say. We have acted very wickedly towards you. When last did you hear a Christian describe in prayer their actions before God as very wicked? It doesn't really happen today. We tend to play down our, our failings and our sins, whereas the Bible tends to play them up. He covers all his bases. We have not obeyed your commands, your decrees, your laws. We have acted very wickedly. I believe in evangelicalism today. The confession of sin is a lost art. We are very quick to gloss over sin, to excuse it in our lives and in the lives of other people. We've bought into this notion of Christianity that God just wants us to be happy. And being happy as a Christian has become the driving force in contemporary evangelicalism. What's the purpose of my life? Contemporary evangelicalism says it's to be happy. And God wants to help you to be happy. And God will do anything to help you be happy. And Jesus died on the cross so that you can be happy. Here's a good one. What's the goal of marriage? Oh, my personal happiness. And if anything detracts from that, well, we need to make a plan. No, the goal of marriage is not our personal happiness. I'm sorry to, to, to shock anybody here with that, but there are actually some greater purposes in life than our happiness. What should we be doing as a church? Many would say, well, that which brings the greatest amount of happiness to the greatest amount of people. Rubbish. That's not the purpose of the church, to make everybody happy. It's to glorify God, to pursue justice, to obey God, to grow in humility, to grow in character. That's way more important than being happy. From God's perspective... 
That's the problem with prosperity teaching and the healthers and wealthers. So much of contemporary Christianity is focused on this wrong thing. Even much of what passes as worship today, it's a lot of singing about ourselves and what God's doing for me and how God's making me feel. Worship should be about, which we did today, is celebrate the great themes of, of God's plan and redemption. I've really got it in for narcissism because I think it's so unhealthy and is ruining people's lives. Jesus says that if you seek your life, you will lose it. But if you give your life in serving others and for a greater cause, you will find it. Why are we sitting with so many young adults who don't know where they're going in life purposeless? It's because they've grown up as the selfie generation. In the pursuit of happiness. And if you seek happiness, you will not find it. Will we be those who can truly confess sin for what it is? What are the sins of our culture in our heritage? And it doesn't matter what color you are, what race you are, where you come from. All of us come from a heritage where there there are things and cultural values that are not honoring to God. Are we willing to own those things and confess them? Sins like pride, indifference, greed, the exploitation of others, chauvinistic attitudes towards women, a lack of compassion, a lack of respect, a lack of empathy for others. Friends, when a prominent politician in our country says he wants to cut the throat of whiteness. What does he mean? He doesn't actually mean, you can relax, he, he doesn't mean he wants to cut the throat of white people, but he wants to come against that which he sees in this instance of a white culture, that which is which is arrogant and wrong and pervasive and whatever. He wants to destroy that and people today refer to that as whiteness and so there's a lot of confusion but behind a lot of the the smoke and, and rhetoric there's a real heart cry it's, it's a recognition that in certain cultures are sins that need to be acknowledged and owned and confessed of and it's far better that we do this heart searching ourselves So Nehemiah confesses his sins to the Lord and the sins of his people of which he sees himself as a part. But Nehemiah also has, has hope and he taps into God's plan and what God has said he wants to do. Let me conclude today by just going over my four main points, which in all that I've said may well have been missed. What can we learn from Nehemiah chapter 1? 
Here's the first point. The importance of being informed. Of knowing what is going on. Many so-called white people have still to this day never been into a township and sat in a shack and experienced what life is like for millions of people in our city. And that's a good thing. And, and I believe every South African needs to spend time in communities where, where people are living, often in terrible conditions. It's too easy for us to be uninformed. That is the default position. But Nehemiah wants to know what's going on. And he wants to know whether God's kingdom is advancing. There are many places around the world today where the church is doing terribly. Where Christians are being raped, killed and imprisoned. Just this week I think China has passed new laws about how the Bible may or may not be sold. In our own country, as I've mentioned, there are many places where the church is struggling. And we look what we have here and we can think, well, other churches are doing well. No, we are like an exception here. That we're solvent, that we're functional. Many churches are in deep, deep trouble. So he was informed, Nehemiah, because he asked the right questions. Secondly, he became emotionally engaged. And I want to spend a little more time on this because this is a technical point. It's one thing to know about how other people are living. But when Nehemiah find out, found out about it, he sat down and wept. And that's what brought about change in Nehemiah's actions and behavior. We can't just know what's going on. We have to be, be touched at a heart level. I see this in the story of the Good Samaritan. The priest walked down the road. He saw the man and he passed by on the other side. So he knew what was going on. But there was no emotional engagement. The second guy, the Levite, he saw him and passed on the other side. Again, he, he saw what was happening. At, at a cognitive level, he understood, here's a guy who's in a terrible state, whatever. But it was just at a cognitive level, and so he walked on. What's different about the Good Samaritan? It says, when he saw him, he took pity on him. And that's it. That, that is the single difference as to why some people that know what's going on do something and why others just get on with their lives. Nehemiah does, thirdly, some real introspection. There was a willingness to acknowledge and to confess. Those 
things that, that he's been part of that have caused the problems we're facing today. And Christians should be at the forefront of confessing their sins, of acknowledging things that are wrong, instead of allowing liberals to point them out to us. But all communities and people need to do this. We're all part of many communities. My street is a community. It's made up of people of many different races and religions and orientations, I can assure you. I was part of the, am part of the Kirstenhof community. I've been part of a school community. I'm part of our church community. What are the sins of those communities that I need to own and acknowledge? We can go further. I'm, I'm male, not female. I'm a have, not a have not. I'm married, not single. These are all communities, group things that give us group identity. And I didn't spend a lot of time on this, but maybe we should have. Nehemiah has tremendous hope. Tremendous hope. Let's, uh, let's leave it there. We'll pick it up next week. I think one of our elders, Tom, is going to be preaching next week, and, and I'll be at Musenberg. But let's pray into chapter 1. Lord, I've certainly found this chapter in Nehemiah very, very challenging. And we see how Nehemiah wants to be informed, how he takes the initiative to find out how are things going how is God's plan advancing Father God help us to ask the right questions as well deliver us from the sins of selfishness from loving those that love us and no others give us hearts Lord for for other communities. Give us a real heart for, for the advance of the church. And please, Lord, engage us at an emotional level. Help us to feel the pain that others feel. When you say we must mourn with those who mourn, help us to be empathetic, to be understanding, to be sensitive to the struggles that other people have. And help us, Lord, to be able to recognize and confess the sins of our own community. Help us to see how certain values that we might hold dear impact other people. And forgive us, Lord, for being indifferent to the suffering of others, for not doing even more to, to help other communities, struggling communities, Christian communities.
Lord Nehemiah said he's acted very wickedly. Lord, we might not be there in our hearts, but go on shining your light into our lives until we see our failings and our sins as you do. Help us not to excuse them, but to own them, to rectify them, and to do what we can to repent of them. And thank you for the hope we have, Lord, going forward. Like Nehemiah, we too want to pray about our troubled country. And we want to pray for, for peace and stability and for prosperity. And we pray that where communities are broken down, 